Hello, everybody, and welcome to the American Shoreline Podcast. This is Peter Ravella, co-host of the show. And this is Tyler Buckingham, the other co-host. Well, Tyler, we're coming up on Memorial Day. Indeed. And that means a lot of people are going to be going to the beach. And uh, the conditions along the shoreline uh, can be uh, hopefully good for the summer, but there's some issues that need to be dealt with and talked about, particularly in the great state of Florida, one of the most visited beach states in America. And we're going to be talking about what's going on in Florida and beaches and water quality along the beaches and some of the challenges ahead today. Yeah. Happy Memorial every, uh, Memorial Day, everybody. Yes. Uh, I, I imagine many of you have made your way to the beach, have uh, lathered up the sunscreen and are hopefully enjoying your time on the shore somewhere on the American shoreline. Um, but there's a good chance that if you're in Florida, you might have checked the water quality before you went out. Uh, I know that this is an increasing factor. And even though it is the beginning of summer yeah. and this is kind of a rare thing to be maybe on your mind this time of year, um, it is indeed a factor that we've been following on Coastal News today. Uh, Blue-green algae, red tides, yeah. and how these systems are exploding and becoming increasingly top of mind in particularly Florida. Yeah, I mean, the, the presence of red tide and blue-green blue, blue green algae along the shoreline can really have a substantial impact on the tourism economy of the great state of Florida. And we're going to be talking to an expert to explore and better understand this issue. Uh, Dr. James Sullivan is the executive director of the Harbor Branch Oceanographic Institute, which is part of Florida Atlantic University. And he is also a member of the Blue-Green Algae Task Force formed by Governor DeSantis in May uh, 2019. He is one of five key science members of that task force. And he is also a member of the Red Tide Mitigation and Technology Development Initiative, another state uh, program put in place by Governor DeSantis to come up with uh, recommendations to address the explosion of red tide that occurred in 2018 and 2019 in Florida. So we're going into the summer season. There's reason to be concerned about these issues, and we're going to talk to James Sullivan and learn all about it today. Really looking forward to this show, Peter. Let's have a quick word from our sponsors and then dive right in. The American Shoreline Podcast Network and CoastalNewsToday.com are brought to you by LJA Engineering. With 28 offices along the Gulf Coast, the folks at LJA Engineering are at the top of the craft in the areas of coastal restoration, coastal infrastructure, rivers and channels, numerical modeling, disaster recovery, and design and construction oversight. Be sure to check out their brand new Coastal Resilience Department, headed up by ASPN's own Peter Ravella. Find them at LJA. Be sure to subscribe to the Coastal News Today Daily Blast newsletter at CoastalNewsToday.com for daily updates on the events and news that shape the coastal discussion. Want to support the discussion and promote your company? We have sponsorship packages available now. Email me to learn more at Chloe at CoastalNewsToday.com. That's C-H-L-O-E at CoastalNewsToday.com. Hope to hear from you and enjoy the show. Well, Dr. Sullivan, we appreciate you taking time out of your daily schedule to talk to the uh, our listeners on the American Shoreline podcast. And uh, we're really interested in learning more about red tide and blue green algae in Florida. Thank you for the the opportunity. Uh, No problem. My pleasure. Glad to uh, help out and talk to your listeners. Well, Dr. Sullivan, uh, before we get into it, I'd like to quickly kind of go over your background. How did how did you become 
interested in uh, these cyanobacteria. Is that what they're called? Yeah, he's. A, yes. I think he's Doctor Doom of the Algal Bloom. I Dr. believe is Doom of the Algal Bloom. Is, How I, I believe that's his wife's uh, nickname. <laughs> Yes, it is. <laughs> um, how I became interested in it when I uh, was much younger and getting my PhD, uh, it was in biological oceanography. And what I actually specialized in uh, was phytoplankton physiology and ecology. Now, phytoplankton's a uh, fancy science term for algae. Uh, so I studied algae of all types, but then you know, back when I was in graduate school, and this was 30 years ago, so I'm dating myself, harmful algal blooms were just becoming a problem. I mean, it really is something that I have over the over my life have seen just explode across the United States and the globe. And as a scientist that studied algae, I was really interested in what drove these organisms. So Cyanobacteria and blue grid algae are just one of many types of algae I have studied, uh, but they're fascinating organisms and they're adapted to do what they do, which is take over ecosystems. Uh, Dr. Sullivan, let's let's just go go on. Uh, t what tell us about what makes these organisms so fascinating and interesting, and uh, some maybe peculiar traits that uh, particular ones have. Yeah, so, I mean, we could do a whole show on just how algae have adapted to survive. Uh, they've been on this earth far longer than humans and most animals. We're talking, in some cases, you know, it could be a billion years. So even though they're single-cell organisms, they have learned uh, a myriad of ways to survive on the earth and exploit certain ecosystems and conditions. We'll take uh, blue-green algae is, is a good example of this. Now, this isn't true of the toxic form, or at least one of the main toxic forms we have in Florida, but many blue-green al algae are actually what we call nitrogen fixers. So nitrogen and phosphorus are two of the basic nutrients that algae and all plants need to survive. If you fertilize your lawn, you use nitrogen and phosphorus or a crop, whatever it is. Um, so these nutrients over, you know, in the ocean or in lakes can be in short supply, depending on, you know, what the runoff is like. But blue-green algae have evolved to actually synthesize their own nitrogen, their own fertilizer, essentially, from the atmosphere. They take nitrogen gas, which is abundant in our atmosphere, and actually fix it into organic nitrogen, which they can use to grow. That's a competitive advantage over algae that can't do that because now they only need to find phosphorus. They've already got their nitrogen taken care of. So that allows them to uh, take over areas where other algae can't, so they can outcompete them. The other example would be with red tide, which is a term we you kind of broadly use for many, many harmful algal blooms. But in Florida, it means a specific organism, and that's not true everywhere else. But here, it's a type of organism called a dinoflagellate. Now, if you know anything about Latin, flagellate means uh, a way of moving and swimming. These are single-cell organisms that are actually modal. So they swim up and down through the water column. They swim up to the surface during the day to get light. And then they swim generally, swim down uh, at nighttime to find nutrients. And this is how uh, they can outcompete algae that aren't modal. So totally different organism, 
but it has a, a different strategy to be more successful than uh, other algae. Red tide in particular, or the organism called Karenia brevis, which is the dinoflagellate that um, we call red tide, also is uh, like a Venus flytrap. It not only is like a plant that can photosynthesize, but it can actually eat other algae to get nutrition, which is another adaptation. Again, a single cell, but it, it can eat other things. And just think of like the Venus flytrap that eats flies. Uh, they, they, even though they're plants, they're kind of in between being a plant and an animal at the same time. And that's just two very simple examples of the type of adaptations some of these algae have. Uh, Dr. Sullivan, in May 2019, uh, Governor Ron DeSantis formed the Blue-Green Algae Task Force, and there is also a Red Tide Mitigation and Technology Development Project in the state as well. Uh, would you tell our audience uh, what what organism is causing concern for the state of Florida and its beachgoers? So there's uh, several. Uh, the blue-green algae that's most prevalent in Lake Okeechobee and many of our freshwater lakes actually is a species called Microcystis organosa. Um, it makes this very green colored, discolored water. It floats to the surface of the water. It's different from other cyanobacteria. It makes these large colonies of algae that actually have air bubbles inside and trapped in them where they can float and make this green scum you see all over the water. Mm -hmm. uh, so that is the main organism that we have an issue with in Florida. It's also an organism that is a problem worldwide. It has become a huge issue. It's the organism in the Great Lakes that causes harmful algal blooms in many of our la large lakes like Lake Champlain. Uh, in the United States and in in again, as I said, across the world right now. For red tide, uh, as I said, it's a different type of organism. It's a saltwater organism versus microcystis, which is a freshwater organism. And red tide is Karenia brevis, that right. dinoflagellate I was talking about. Yep. The uh, kind the, of a T Rex uh, yeah. algae. Yeah, it swims. <laughs> kind it's, of a badass predator out there. It is. It's part plant, part animal. It Alpha, can move around. It's is it an apex uh, algae predator? <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, the, I, I like you know what? Dinoflagellates were my specialty when I was uh, getting my degree, and they have amazing adaptations. Dinoflagellates can sense light, so even though they don't have eyes, they they don't have a nervous system. They're single cells. They sense light, so they know which way uh, where the sun is, and they go to it. They sense gravity. They know how to swim down. <laughs> they know Some of them can well. sense magnetic fields. Some of them are bioluminescent. They produce light to scare away predators. I mean, just an amazing, amazing organism that has adapted a lot longer on the earth than we have. Unbelievable. These these uh, we're, we're going into microbiology for all the listeners, and I'm telling them, stick with this. This is interesting, and it's important to understand. Uh, we know blue-green algae is a big concern. We read about it a lot uh, on Coastal News Today and in the news about Lake Oak Jacoby, a freshwater body in the middle of the state of Florida in the southern half. Uh, tell us about what why it is important to get a handle on what's happening in lake ochacobi and how that's connected to concerns along the coast 
So Lake Okeechobee is our, you know, largest freshwater water body um, in the state of Florida. It's almost considered like another great lake. And uh, it's a source of drinking water. It's a huge recreational area. And it also uh, has an earthen dike all the way around it with a lot of communities and, you know, people that live around it. Now, Florida gets a lot of rain. And the watershed for Lake Okeechobee is uh, very large. It goes all the way up into the Orlando area. And the lake is, is more, much more southern than that. And when we get a lot of this rain during the summertime, the lake level gets high. And we, it, since it's an earthen dam essentially holding the lake back from flooding homes and, and potentially killing people, the Corps of Engineers has to discharge water to lower the lake level during the rainy season. So as you can imagine, with a lake full of toxic algae, when they have to discharge water, which goes to both coasts, so it goes to both the west coast and the east coast of Florida, it carries all this toxic algae into the local commu coastal communities. So it is not just confined to the lake anymore. It now becomes a marine problem, uh, an ocean problem. And the one of the big issues is the algae can somewhat survive uh, limited salinity or salt as it hits salt water. But if it hits full ocean water, it will, of course, die because it's a freshwater algae, but it will release all its toxin at once. So you can get a huge pulse of toxin. And this toxin is pretty dangerous, um, much like red tide toxin can be as well. So it is not just a freshwater problem in a freshwater lake because of the just the dynamics of how we have to manage Lake Okeechobee and its its level. It suddenly becomes a, a big issue on both coastlines. I want to get into the um, health implications, the public health implications of these algal blooms and red tide events um, a little later. But first, what's driving the these these blooms in? Uh, Okeechobee and then you know broader it sounds like uh, you know you mentioned the Great Lakes we know Lake Erie uh, has had a, a bloom what are the what are the driving factors that are causing these things to happen you mentioned earlier that 30 years ago uh, it was very rare and it seems like this is a, a common occurrence now um, it is and it's becoming more common as we go forward in time now you got to think it's easy to put this way for people that aren't scientists. Algae are, are mostly can be considered simple plants. They're just like the grass that grows in your yard. So they only need three things to really grow and become an issue. And that's light, adequate temperature, and nutrients to grow. So in Florida, we have abundant light. We are the sunshine state. So um, that's always- No shortage there. And never going to be a limiting factor for the algae to grow. Nutrients, we have um, a lot of agriculture in Florida. We have a lot of septic systems and uh, runoff that gets into our waterways and does what's called nutrient pollution or eutrophication. And Lake Okeechobee is a, a great example of a lake that has been um, significantly impacted by nutrient runoff. So now we, we're fertilizing the water, so the algae will have plenty of nutrients to grow, and then they need adequate temperature. So the warmer it is in general, the faster these algae grow. So that's another thing Florida has an abundant amount of, and that's warm temperature. So we generally see harmful algal blooms being an issue in the summertime. 
because the temperatures uh, obviously get hotter. In Florida, um, and particularly with microcystis, microcystis loves hot weather. So it's really primed to grow well in Florida, fresh water that's been polluted with nutrients. So of these three things, what can we control? Uh, we can't control light. We're not going to turn off the sun and uh, we can't really stop the temperature from getting warm and it's being exasper exasperated by global warming, obviously. Uh, so the only thing we're left with is nutrients and we can control nutrient pollution through regulation and better policies and just better practices. And that's, that's what we're trying to do. And that's what our task force works on. It's what many of the uh, scientists who advise policymakers. It's how do we control nutrient pollution so we don't just feed these algae and allow them to grow uh, the way we currently see them growing. That's a great explanation and uh, easier said than done. And in the case of nutrient management, uh, not just in Florida, but around the country, as you mentioned, uh, agricultural runoff where we apply fertilizers for crops that we like, uh, there's a high water table in Florida. The nutrients move uh, quite easily and collect into Lake Okeechobee. And for folks on, on listening to this, if you can, go on Google Earth and pull up the state of Florida and look for the biggest water body down near West Palm Beach. It's right in the center of the state. You'll see this big giant lake and that's the that's Lake Okeechobee and that's what we're talking about uh, today. And let me just add add while you're while you're looking at Florida on Google Earth satellite view. Yeah. Just scroll around and I believe it is the most canaled kind of marinaed uh, state uh, in the union, pretty pretty densely done. New I, Jersey's a competitor. New Jersey, yeah, uh, tr true. But these these nutrient control issues, uh, when you look at if you're following along in the press, like many of our listeners may do, especially if they're reading Coastal News today, there is a tremendous discussion going on between the sources of nutrients, and it comes down to to what extent is a nutrient contribution to this problem uh, originating in the agricultural community? And to what is, extent is it uh, rising from residential waste management and septic systems and other human sources of nutrients? Um, do you have a feel for the balance between those two? And are there other sources I'm not mentioning? Uh, of course, there definitely are other sources. Um, but as far as the balance... It really is site specific. So while we could say, okay, in Lake Okeechobee, how much of the, the nutrient load that's going in there, what percentage is coming from agriculture, what percentage comes from leaky septic systems, what percentage just comes from general land runoff, uh, we can look at it in a case-by-case -case basis in the watershed. But that's the way you have to do it because in Lake Okeechobee, I would say I would be safe to say that the majority of nutrients that are getting into excess nutrients that are getting into lake are sourced out of agricultural um, issues. However, if I go over to the Indian River Lagoon, which is a very large estuary on Florida's east coast, that might not be the case. In this case, it could be the septic systems that are, are den the densely populated area around the lagoon itself and the septic system runoff that we get in there. 
Um, the other sources are straight stormwater runoff. I mean, this is residential residents like to have green lawns. They yep. put fertilizer on their lawn. We and then we have rain and you get runoff. We do try to ban putting fertilizer during the rainy season. Um, you know, there's a lot of different things we're trying to do to mitigate um, that runoff. You also get failure of infrastructure. So there are some places in Florida that still have wooden sewer pipes. Wow. So wow. You, you may actually have sewers, but they may be transporting it through something that really is not state of the art. So if you follow in the press, you'll see almost every year that a major sewer line will break and there'll be a, you know, millions of gallons of untreated sewage spilled into a local waterway. Wow. This is uh, not an uncommon occurrence in Florida. And it's just where we need to rebuild infrastructure uh, to just bring it up up to code. Uh, another thing we can get when we have like a hurricane and you get just rain that inundates the sewage treatment plants, uh, they can't allow the, the plant itself to get destroyed. There's too much water comes in. The plant obviously can't deal with the runoff that comes through the sewers just from natural rain. So at some point they have to open up and discharge sewer as well. I mean, they just, it's, it's a problem. Now that's during a natural disaster, right. but it is still something that happens. So there are a lot of these type of uh, issues. It's not one simple source. It's, you know, septic or ag. It's okay. Right. We got to look at the whole problem. Ooh. And then it is, what is that? What is that watershed actually like? So we can't, when you hear people just say, oh, it's septic systems. Oh, it's, it's, that's, that's really dumbing too, down and too simplifying problems. It's too generalized. I got it. So, you know, one of the great things about about Florida and the coastal waters is the clarity of the water is fantastic. And that's indicative of a low nutrient environment and not a lot of plankton and phytoplankton in the water column. It's crystal clear. Everybody loves that. Over the last, as you said, 50 years or go back however many more decades you wish, the modification of the Florida Peninsula, the increased agriculture, increased density of, of uh, human population. We have changed the water chemistry um, on this peninsula to the point where it's creating this incredibly challenging problem. Um, it's taken 50 years to get this problem to the point that it is now. Uh, what a job for this task force. Could you imagine there's five <laughs> scientists on this task force who are supposed to sit down and figure out uh, how to handle this problem uh, sounds like a daunting task, Dr. Sullivan. It is. And I think you hit it um, a, a very important point. You know, people want results immediately. You know, why isn't it fixed is what you hear. And it's like a problem that took 50 years to essentially get to the point it is does not go away overnight. So it takes a concerted effort of the government and other stakeholders and uh, private citizens who all work together for potentially decades to bring it back to where it needs to be. Wow. I mean, this is not going to go away quickly. Uh, there is, uh, and I don't have hard science for this, but I've heard many people say it, the legacy load that's sitting in the bottom of Lake Okeechobee, you look at, you know, decades and decades of excess nutrients going into the lake and all the mud and muck on the bottom of the lake, that if we stopped all pollution into the lake today, it was crystal clear water going in, 
that there'd be enough nutrients to fuel algae, you know, algae and algal growth for, you know, many, many decades. Ugh, boy, <laughs> so, that's scary. That's the kind of, that's what you have to think about is, okay, you know, we have to really curtail the nutrient pollution, but we've got to give nature time to burn up, you know, what we've already put there. Uh, well, the, and the, the politics of this and the interests affected are powerful and difficult to reconcile. But one fair thing that can be concluded at this point in the process is effectively responding to the blue-green algae problem and red tide is going to take a boatload of money. Is uh, is that your, I mean, there there are no cheap and easy ways to handle a systematic problem like this. It seems like the bill is going to be huge. What are you hearing uh, when it comes down to the investment the state of Florida and others, maybe at the federal level, are willing to make to tackle these complicated problems? Well, I mean, that's probably some of the the better news. I mean, at least it seems to be trending in the right direction. I think Governor DeSantis has actually done a pretty good job funding environmental issues such as this, as you are absolutely correct, are going to cost in the billions where they be to ultimately uh, remediate and fix. We also see um, the federal government helping as well. So I think both states and the federal governments do have to work together and, you know, it it has to be set as a priority. I think climate change initiatives are going to help with this because it's a aggregating factor in in a lot of these uh, algal bloom issues. But we do see a good amount of funding coming in. Is it enough? It probably uh, will never be enough, you know, ultimately for what a scientist would want. But it will be a lot of money to do. If you think about the amount of septic systems, if we were just going to say, let's let's get everyone onto sewer sewers so it goes to sewer cheap treatment plants and we can do a better job with nutrients there, it'll cost billions to remediate all the septic systems in Florida. And a lot of places, it's just not feasible. It's great if you have a densely populated area with, you know, a lot of septic systems that you can hook up. But when you're out in the rural parts of Florida, of which if you've been in our state, we're a pretty rural state in the center, um, you, it's not feasible to put sewer lines in. You still are going to have to have septic systems no matter what. So now you're talking, okay, we need better septic systems that will basically burn up the nutrients before they get into the water table or get into our sandy soil. So none of it's cheap, you know, and changing agricultural pro- uh, processes, getting different kinds of fertilizer or limiting fertilizer use, all of these things are expensive and, and time consuming to, to get um, in place. Well, it seems like uh, it's only a matter of time before the math will uh, ultimately necessitate the investment. Um, at least that's the way I see it. Uh, Dr. Sullivan, tell us about the health the the health consequences if this were to go unchecked, or I guess even as it is now, when there is a an event. Uh, what what does this mean for the public health? Uh, you know, I, I've said this many times publicly, as far as we have two, there's two ways you can be affected by a harmful algal bloom. One is acute, you know, you go down and you, 
you drink water that's contaminated with toxin or you breathe in a lot of toxin because the toxin is aerosolized or you're swimming in the water and you ingest the water with the toxin in it as many, many different ways to get exposed, but you have an acute reaction. In other words, you, you get a reaction within hours or a day. The bigger issue is a low level exposure, like breathing in toxins from red tide or cyanobacteria. If you live around any of these areas or, or recreating in them, and you get a chronic low level exposure over many years, we don't have really any sense of what that does to people. There hasn't been that kind of research done. I advocate it all the time that we need it. But again, very expensive to do a longitudinal study where you follow people for decades to see what the health outcomes are from these kind of exposures. So it's hard for me to answer that question directly other than the acute responses. We know it happens. People, if they're around these blooms, they're out in a boat or they're down by the coastline during a red tide. People that are asthmatics or have lung issues will immediately start coughing. They could have a very difficult time breathing. Uh, they're breathing in a neurotoxin in the case of red tide, so it's not good for them. Uh, generally, it does not lead to death, but uh, at least with red tide toxin. And the same thing with blue-green algal toxin, uh, it does aerosolize. People do breathe it in. People complain that they uh, have lung issues or they get rashes on their skin from exposure. But again, those are all kind of short-term reactions. Some people say they're neurological symptoms, which are very difficult to uh, quantify and, and make sure you know it's a cause and effect type thing. Um, what we really worry about, I'll say it again, is if you are exposed to this every year, what ultimately is it going to do to your health? And we simply do not know that. Yeah, and that is a big question that definitely needs additional study. You know, one of the things that I found really interesting, uh, Dr. Sullivan, about um, the kind of emergence of this issue, I mean, we kind of I mean, I realized that before we, Peter and I started doing Coastal News Today, that these events occurred. But I mean, I remember, Peter, we had a meeting and we were like tracking trending news stories and the blue green algae stories that one summer just erupted. And it, 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 it no doubt was uh, probably 2019 or 2018 um, when it really seemed to be um uh, entering its into the news. Oh, that might have been an election year in Florida as well. Um, it was. And, I mean, 2016 and 2018 were very bad years. And we happened to be, Peter and I happened to be uh, engaged in a consulting gig in Florida at the time and doing public engagement there. And in speaking with people who were operating Airbnbs, charter fishermen, you know, part just the nuts and bolts pieces of the economy they were more scared and concerned about the blue-green algae, which was imp which had decimated their season, than the upcoming uh, hurricane season. I mean, that was the temperature in the room. So, I, from a political, I, I mean, p political might be the wrong word, but from a public awareness, public concern perspective, it seems to me like blue-green algae has kind of vaulted its way up. Um, into the public consciousness. And, and I know around the Great Lakes, on Lake Erie in particular, uh, it is definitely this way. Has that 
maintained? Has that focus maintained? And uh, did it result? I mean, obviously, you got the task force going, but have there been investments being made? Are there projects underway? Are we is the ball rolling? Yeah, it is. And it's a um, so the investments were when the ta- right after 2018, I mean, the task force spun up that following year um, and money was set aside to, you know, the task force prioritize, OK, you know, where should we start? Because I mean, it's a long road, we have to start somewhere. One of the one of the big things that we still don't understand is why is one year bad for algal blooms in Lake Okeechobee, for example, or Red Tide, for that matter, and why is another year not? You know, what are the environmental controls that lead to one of these severe years, and they're becoming more common, so something's changing rapidly. Uh, but. As scientists, it's like, if we're going to stop it, we need to know what the trigger is. You know, the nutrients are always there, but not every year is it a bad year. It looks like this year is going to be a bad year again. It seems like we're due again. But we need that most basic information, which amazingly, again, we don't have. So there was a uh, a concerted effort to put money into uh, a, a big study into Lake Okeechobee to try to determine what this environmental trigger is. You know, is it something we can maybe mitigate or at least understand so we can predict when it's going to get bad and be ready for it? So that is ongoing right now. Uh, Multi-million dollar studies with scientists out there um, collaborating on work. There are health studies that have started about looking at uh, the aerosolization of blue-green algal toxins. You know, how do they get in the air? How far do they go? All that, you know, uh, doing health studies on actual humans that live around the lake and other impacted areas to see how much of the toxins actually getting into the local population. All these things are going on, as well as mitigation efforts, new technologies to, okay, if we can target it in a certain area, can we get rid of the algae? Can we clean up a marina? Can we clean up a, a, a particularly bad area? and at least try to reclaim um, some semblance of clean water again. And that's going on again with both red tide and blue-green algae. All these efforts are ongoing. Uh, The investment has been made. More can always be done, but there is some hope uh, that, you know, science is on the job and we are trying to Mm. get there. That's great to hear. And as you said, it, that, that, uh, initiative and energy and investment arose out of a couple of uh, severe algal bloom years, 2018, 2016, I guess, 2019. There's The conditions were unacceptable. Uh, people weren't going to the beach. It was interfering with the tourism economy, not to mention the natural resource damage caused by these harmful algal blooms, uh, dolphin, manatees, whale sharks, Fish, millions and millions of critters in the water who are were lethal, lethally affected by these harmful algal blooms. It's it's a it's a true disaster, and I don't want to say natural disaster, but it's a true disaster. And uh, I wonder, you know, this is the one of the the difficult parts about the about how we operate in our public institutions is we we tend to get focused when the conditions become intolerable. And uh, when we can turn our attention away, you get a few clean years, uh, people forget. Um, 
looking down the road over the next 10 years, uh, is your prognosis that the likelihood of severe uh, harmful algal blooms on the Florida coast are likely to increase, or do you feel like this has kind of reached a steady state? Oh, if I was curious now, you're going to hear my Dr. Doom speech, but um, I absolutely believe it's going to increase. Uh, our own government does the NOAA climate assessment. That was one of the major, um, the, the most recent climate assessment that NOAA put out. One of the prime conclusions was harmful algal blooms were going to increase in the southeast, in particular Florida. For our region, that was one of the main results of uh, climate change. And that's due to the, the increasing temperatures, helping the growth and also increasing rain and precipitation patterns, which increase runoff. So you can understand how it's going to happen. I think it, you brought up a very good point about out of sight, out of mind. When we don't have a bad algal year, it tends to leave the general person's consciousness. They don't they're not up. They're not as upset about it because it's not right in front of their face, and that's human nature. In Lake Erie, where their harmful algal, their severe harmful algal blooms occur every single year, pretty much without fail, in around the second week of July, I kind of believe Lake Okeechobee is heading to the same condition as Lake Erie, mm. where it's not every other year, every couple of years we have a bad bloom. It's every year we have a bad bloom. Once that happens, it will no longer, you know, be a sporadic thing that we have to fight for to get in the public consciousness. It will always be there. So until we can stop the blooms themselves, you know, I, I hate to say we need these, we need these issues to occur a lot, but the only way to get political action is for it to be front and center in people's mind and for them to demand change from uh, their political leaders. And when we have a couple years of, you know, not bad algal blooms, we have to start going up that mountain all over again when we have a bad year and say, okay, something needs to be done. Um, so keeping it in the forefront of everyone's consciousness is one of the biggest challenges we have as scientists and policymakers and task force, all these different people and groups. I mean, that's what we fight all the time. And that's why I am always willing to talk to people like you because this message always has to be repeated and it, it, we constantly have to discuss it or, you know, people just forget and it is going to get worse. I mean, I hate to say it, but I truly believe it's going to get worse. You know, I, I hate that. I hate that. It makes me, Peter, it makes me just want to, on a good year, take a bag of fertilizer and dump it in the... <laughs> I don't think we need. We are doing no, that. No, that's, eco, we're, that's we're doing that. or ecoterrorism, and I would not do well, that. But we don't need to because we're systematically doing that anyway. I understand. I mean, that's the. But you know, it's it's like yeah. to keep it. It's yeah. just so. It's such a. Uh, it's it's we have to evolve beyond this uh, as a species. We I would feel. hope. I think I think it's the mission at hand. Is can we, can we get ahead of the impacts? and just think a little bit further than yeah you know the immediate thing yeah. and well boy. and i not to interrupt you but look at what goes on right now with climate change and global warming you know people only say it's a real problem when they start to see their front yard underwater and king tides get bad and, and the various things that happen that they can believe it's real 
what we know it's happening as scientists and we ring the alarm bells constantly and yet until people see it affecting their own life they don't get active and it, th- this is just human nature and yeah. it's an unfortunate aspect of human nature <laughs> well i think florida is going to get uh you know i like to say uh, reality is the best teacher and uh, as these conditions continue to repeat and as the economic dislocation uh occurs and the health effects and just the just the impact on a tourism-based coastal state like Florida. Uh, I think there's going to be ammo in the pipeline. I've got a question. Um, You know, we just did our show. I'm just thinking about, like, if this were happening elsewhere, what would other states, how would they respond? You know, and we talked about Lake Erie. I know that there's a task force up there um, with the states that are around that area, New York, Ohio, et cetera. I'm thinking about our, our show with Brad Warren that we did last week um, on the salmon and this move now, even among Republicans, to take down the dams out west. Out in Idaho. And I'm wondering if, uh, you know, Florida is maybe one of the most, it's a very obviously low-lying um, spongy, spongy state. <laughs> it's very, it's very damp. There's a uh, very complicated, very water oriented. <laughs> it is, but I, I wonder if maybe this blue green algae issue could, huh. is going to be kind of a similar thing to the salmon, where it's like, hey, we got to rewild some of the system. Huh. It's just you know, if, if it becomes a yearly thing, what are you, what are you going to do? Chemically well, treat Okeechobee? I mean, I don't even know. If there if there is a an engineered a purely engineered solution, I think you're. What do you think? Is there is there a technological solution to this other than changing our way of life? So this is a question that comes up a lot, and and particularly from lay people, and actually people that have that think they have technology that can work to mitigate algal blooms and it always becomes a scale problem it's like yes if you're talking about a small pond on a golf course or in a neighborhood and it's filled with uh, blue green algae yeah you could definitely treat it with some chemicals and kill the algae that's not a problem but when you have something the scale of a great lake like lake erie (laughs) or lake okeechobee which is also huge um you can't put yeah. It's almost impossible to put that level of chemical into an ecosystem. And then you have the obvious flaming red flag that you can't kill all algae. You need a specific algicide, essentially, or a specific way to kill only the algae that you think is harmful because algae are the base of the ecosystem and are generally a very good thing. And without them, we wouldn't have oxygen to breathe. Right. Um, so, Ooh, there's very tough. hard it's not that easy and here's the, here's the one thing i will say though and this is particularly true for red tide if you can catch the origin of the bloom catch it when it's very small you know and that's that's the science of understanding what's driving a bloom and where it where it originates and how it spreads if you can catch it and understand where it is Mitigation may work quite well then because you can target a very small area, wipe out the seed population, and maybe it'll just be a, a very small bloom. A little whack-a-mole. Background. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so targeted mitigation is definitely a scientific strategy, but it requires really understanding the ecosystem to, to do that targeting correctly. Okay. So let's, I mean, this is my impression in listening to you. It's 2021. 
the governor's task force and the resources made available to the scientific community to try to understand the basics of the system. What triggers these things? Why is it that in one year Okeechobee is generally clear, even though the nutrient loads are there and the temperature's there and the light is there, something's not happening. I mean, I got to say, this sounds like we are at basic research level uh, that even though it's the 21st century and even though we've been at uh, the scientific method since Descartes in the 1500s, we got a long way to go. We, we, how much time, I mean, to decipher this problem, the complexity of this multidimensional problem, it seems like there's a decade of basic scientific work ahead just to get a handle on what the hell's happening. Yeah. I is mean, that I, fair? Yeah, that's a great question. I have the same question. Like, what is the state of understanding yeah. of these? Uh, I guess it's, you know, it's the broader ecosystem in the water, but just this microalgae yeah. domino uh, world. Yeah. Like, what? what how, how well do we understand this? So we understand a lot, and I, I don't mean to characterize that scientists don't understand how these things grow, you know, much about their physiology. I mean, we know a ton about them, but biology, and if you, if you have any biological background at all, you'd understand that many ecosystems are chaotic in nature. Mm. In other words, it's that butterfly effect where uh, just one thing happens and it changes, but you, you think about algae. Okay, an algae grows, but there are things that eat the algae. And if the right predators are there to eat the algae at the right time, okay, well, maybe the algae never gets to the point of, of blowing up into a bloom. Hmm. Or in that critical couple weeks when a bloom is in its initiation stage, maybe there's not a lot of light or there's extra rain or something, something environmentally that holds it back and, and keeps it from becoming a bloom. Because all the other ingredients are there. Right. It's just something didn't trigger or did trigger, depending on which way it goes, the bloom. That and you have to look at a lot of different environmental variables to actually get a, 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 a correlation that you know is true, <laughs> that you can say, okay, this is yeah. what it is. Yeah. And it could be 10 factors all simultaneously happening at the same time. So it, it's a complex problem and a lot more complex than you would think no, it is. It's super complex because those 10 factors are then controlled by... A bajillion other factors. Well, yeah, the interplay. There's it's just so badass. Ten to the ten powered. Op- oh. Right, and when I say chaos theory, that's kind of what it is. You're looking at a, a, almost a fractal, if people know what that is, of okay, all these conditions have to come together, yeah. but they come together common enough that we do have these blooms. So it's not, you know, it's not something we can't figure out. I don't think it'll take take a decade to do this. The thing is, we've never had concerted really concerted effort to understand these things and now i think in the last probably five to ten years there are these large programs to start understanding this so the investment is now being made i think we'll understand the dynamics of red tide and lake okeechobee probably within the next i don't know three or four or five years okay well that's optimistic and uh, not optimistic but encouraging to hear as you said this isn't a brand new subject there's been years and years of effort to understand these organisms. Uh, so let's talk about what's coming up for the summer. It's Memorial Day. Folks are going to start going to the beach. Uh, I got to say that this particular problem has the potential to change people's understanding of the state of Florida as a recreational playground of the highest order uh, because it's so dis- 
discon I mean, it's just it's devastating when this happens. These algal blooms, there's dead fish. It's, it's absolutely it horrible. Ruins. It, it ruins it ruins it. The green soupy pea soup water you can't see worse through. than I mean, it's a just, hurricane in many respects because you can clean it up. Yeah, and it, and this is persistent. So I, I think it's a it's got to be. Uh, the group on the task force and the Red Tide Working Group uh, as well, uh, y'all are on the front lines of, of one of the most uh, important or the most important economic sector in this state. There's got to be a lot of, uh, I, I would just think that the, the pressure to do well here has got to be pretty high given the, the consequence. The question I have really is going into the summer now, um, what makes you concerned that this because I have been reading that this may not be a good year. What is it about the conditions right now that lead to the concern about the summer harmful algal bloom possibilities here? Well, we always look at when we start to see blooms that look problematic initiating. So do we see them, you know, early in the year? Do we not see them? Does it look like there's a lot of algae, et cetera? And the conditions Generally, I mean, and this, this is one of the controlling factors for blue-green algae in Lake Okeechobee is when we have um, some heavy rainfall, usually early in the spring, let's say March, beginning of April, that is often a trigger for a bad bloom year. And that did happen this year. So we had uh, some significant rain right around that time that always seems to be a, a trigger. And it's something we're looking at right now. And sure enough, uh, the lake pretty much exploded with microcystis and blue-green algae, uh, God, now, almost a month ago. Yeah. Um, and that's early in the year. This is before the summer months when this algae really takes off when it gets really warm. So, I mean, we're still in the mid-80s. So yeah. we look at it like, okay, the lake is primed. There's algae, this toxic algae is across the lake already. And that seed population is in place and ready to go. So Ugh. odds are it's going to be an issue. It's just a matter of how big it gets. But I would guess this is probably going to be, you know, similar to those other bad years. Same thing with red tide off the West Coast. Generally, the red tides don't spin up and get bad till September, October. That's when we look for that seed population. But there already is, last I checked, there is a population growing around the Fort Myers area, I believe. Man, they get um, hammered so that, there. That seems yeah. to be like the epicenter, man. Yeah, there, and you know, also we had the Piney Point phosphorus spill, which doesn't help because that's putting yeah. nutrients out into the ocean. Um, and that's an issue with the discharges as well. I wanted to make this point, you know, the algae, the toxic algae that's discharged out of Lake Okeechobee to the east and west coast is bad enough, but that water that comes from Lake Okeechobee is also laden with nutrients, of course, because it's the lake water that's that's polluted. It's seeded. That goes into the marine system, and the marine algae, like red tide, can use those nutrients just as well as blue-green algae can. So... In effect, even if there's no harmful algae in that lake discharge water that goes to the east and west coasts, you're still fertilizing the coastal yeah. ecosystems with nutrients, Ugh. which normally wouldn't be there. Wow. So that helps red tide grow as well. Um, 
So I, I wouldn't predict that I know that it's going to be a bad red tide year. It's kind of disturbing that there's already some blooms over there and it's not even in near the peak time when it, it starts to get bad. Um, but with the blue-green algae, I'm going to guess it's probably not going to be a good year. Well, it's likely to put you guys on the hot seat. I would assume that you would be uh, called upon in the press and perhaps in the legislature to uh, talk about what can be done. Y'all are, uh, y'all are in that role. Um, I wanted to ask about the legislature here. Uh, I know there were bills proposed during the session uh, that is either currently underway or recently concluded. Uh, are you seeing the kind of political will as a as a citizen of Florida and as a as a scientist as well? But as a citizen, are you seeing the political process? Uh, I guess two questions. One, do you feel like the legislators in Florida understand the problem? And two, does there seem to be a willingness to actually uh, take action legislatively to uh, set the stage for uh, maybe a better future? Uh, I do believe most of the legis- you know, legislature's uh, personnel understand the problem. We brief them you know, when they ask, and we're always willing to do that, regardless of political party or affiliation. Um, as scientists, we should do that. So there's not a lack of, of information for them if they so desire it. As far as what they're doing, last year, a clean, the Clean Waterways Act was uh, pass, which did invoke some of the recommendations we made to the governor as a task force. So that was great to see. This year, uh, they wanted to take that a lot further. And it was a specific bill to um, go to some of the top recommendations that the task for- Blue Green Algal Task Force had made. Uh, in particular, it was putting in a septic system uh, inspection every five years, improving our basin management action action plans and doing a lot of increased monitoring Hmm. uh, to find out if, you know, all these things we do actually work. You know, we tell farmers or people, hey, you got to change, you know, how you manage your land. And we we just expect, well, that that'll work. It's like, well, if we don't test it and and don't monitor it, we don't know if it does work. So, you know, and the task force was very adamant asking for better monitoring in our in our management plans so that we could understand are we taking the correct kind of action that bill did not pass this session i think it died in appropriations and the session is over um i was not particularly surprised we're coming out of a pandemic the state's economy and just getting the state back on a good economic footing is obviously top of all mine minds right now and the bill as it was structured would have cost a lot of money Hmm. and again we're getting back to that money thing right sooner or later the state is going to have to pony up you know some significant investment which this was probably not the year to do that given everything that you know budget cuts and people were worried about with the pandemic effects so i you know i'm not surprised i'm not going to blame them for worrying about just making sure the economy is in good shape before you do this kind of investment so not an issue there um but i do want to see eventually that we the state does make these kind of investments and i think Again, talking about this with the public and raising public awareness, they it's up to the public to put the pressure on the politicians yeah. to actually pass these things. Yeah, I agree. 
the I, I got to say that the state deserves some credit in forming a task force and putting this issue so squarely in the hands of the scientific community so we can understand the damn problem. It's very complicated. Agreed. And yeah, that's good to see. It is. And, and authorizing you guys to provide as a task force recommendations to the governor and to the legislature. Uh, can you give us as a final question here? Uh, a quick update on the status of the task force and the recommendations that may be forthcoming. I'm not sure if you're doing another set of recommendations. Can you inform us a little bit about what might be coming out of the task force over the next uh, year or two? Sure. Um, so you may or may not be aware, but we uh, had a, the governor assigned also a, a chief science officer. So we had our first chief yes. science officer and that, that was Dr. Tom Frazier. And he acted as kind of the chair of the, the Blue Green Angle Task Force. Uh, Tom stepped down and he stepped down uh, last year, right during the pandemic, which kind of put it, you know, the pandemic itself put a damper on getting the task force together because we're, we operate under Florida Sunshine Law, which means they have to be public meetings open to the public. Right. Uh, so that was an issue. But then having the chief scientists uh, leave, that was an issue too. We now have a new chief, uh, chief science officer for the state of Florida, Dr. Mark Rains. I've met him. He's a great guy. I think he's going to be a really good science officer for the state. And he is getting ready to bring the task force back together now since we are out of the pandemic mostly and back to somewhat normal operations. And I can say without giving anything away that um, the Department of Environmental Protection, which basically organized task force and task force meetings, has already sent out doodle polls for all the scientists on the task force Great. for our availability to meet like in the next month. Well, time to get back to work and just in time for the summer season. So if these <laughs> harmful algal blooms are occurring, at least the task force is fully functioning with the new chief science officer for the state. That's fantastic news. Uh, uh, Dr. Sullivan, we really appreciate it. Final thoughts. Um, I, is there is there reason to be uh, encouraged here about the capacity of the state of Florida to take on this tough problem? There, there's always hope. And I am every year I see a little bit further progress and we are getting better. It's just going to take time and money. <laughs> time and money. Two things in short supply all the time. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, it is Dr. James Sullivan from Florida Atlantic University, the executive director of the Harbor Branch Oceanographic Institute and one of the uh, five key scientists on the Blue Green Algae Task Force formed by Governor DeSantis in May 2019. What a challenging uh job you guys have uh, on one of the most uh, important issues, I think, coastal issues in the state of Florida. And uh, I, we wish you all the success. Perhaps you can light the path forward for communities all around the world that are dealing with these very difficult, harmful algal, algal blooms. Incredible, incredibly challenging problem. Well, I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> thank you very much. Have a great day, Dr. Sullivan. We appreciate your time. All right. Thank you. Sad to be